Amen. Well, if you have a Bible, and I hope you do, you can turn to Revelation chapter 15 is where we're going to be, <coughs> excuse me, this morning. Revelation chapter 15, beginning at verse 1. We're going to look at the first four verses in the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 15, verses 1 through 4. Now, one of the gifts of the book of Revelation One of the gifts is that it peels back the curtain and it gives us a glimpse into the worship that is happening and will always be happening and will happen for all of eternity, the worship that is happening in heaven. That's what the book of Revelation does. It's as though God taps us on the shoulders and says, I want you to see something. It's as though he's woken us from our slumber and said, I want to get the sleep out of your eyes, and I want you to see reality. I want you to see what you're meant to see. That's what the book of Revelation is all about. It's not meant to merely be informative. We're not supposed to read the book of Revelation and say, oh, that's interesting. I didn't know that. Now, I mean, maybe you should say that every once in a while, probably a lot when you're reading the book of Revelation, but that's not the end goal, right? The end goal is not merely that we would be informed. It's meant to make our hearts sing. The book of Revelation is meant to make your heart sing. Think about it. In Revelation 15, verses 1 through 4, we're going to see that there is singing in heaven even right now. They're singing in heaven, even right now. And from this point forward, there always will be singing in heaven. There will never be a worshipless moment in heaven. It's not possible, right? It's not possible. The CD is never going to skip a track, right? If you're anything like me, you got a couple of CDs still in your car. I haven't jumped all the way over to digital world, right? And some of those CDs I'll put in and I know the track, right? I'm going to get to that track and it's just going to go bonkers, right? It's going to skip left, right, and every which way. It's just the way that works, right? It's never going to happen in heaven. The CD will never skip a track. There will never be a worshipless moment in heaven. The circumstances will never be such so that there is a break in the singing in heaven. Do you realize that? That means that even when I'm in a dry season in my life, not if, but when, when I'm in a dry season in my life, even when I'm in a songless season where there's no singing, I can remember that there is singing in heaven. When I hit the moments in life, the seasons in life, the songless seasons, I can remember that there is singing in heaven. I want to talk to you this morning about singing a song of deliverance, the singing that we hear in heaven, the singing that we see in, in heaven, and what it means to look like, what it looks like to, to turn our lives in that direction. Our text this morning turns our eyes once again to heaven. This climactic scene in Revelation 15, verses 1 through 4, will bring together the conclusion of God's wrath and the praise of those in heaven. Now, Revelation is the easiest to understand book in the Bible. All right, that was sarcasm, right? Now, the truth of the matter is, I could sum it up for you in two words, right? The entire book of Revelation summed up in two words. Here it is, Jesus wins, right? So if you're ever asked, hey, I have a question about uh, the book of Revelation, I've got an answer for you. 
may not be the answer you're looking for, but Jesus wins. I know that much, right? We can summarize the whole book in that moment. But what we find in the book of uh, uh, Revelation is that John, the apostle who writes it, sees a number of visions. And these visions, I believe, are uh, they're recapping over and over again. They're cyclical. In other words, it's like John says, I mean, I, I really want you to understand something. So I'm going to tell you a story. And he tells us this story, and he paints it in great, beautiful, bold, powerful images, and and he's looking at us with tears in our eyes, and then he gets to the end of his story, and he says, do you get it? I don't don't think you get it. Let me try another story. And he says, I'm going to tell you, I'm trying to make the same point, but a different story. And he tells us the same thing from a different point of view, and again with different images, and again powerful images, and again powerful moments, and again tears in his eyes. And he gets to the end of his story, and he looks at you, and he says, do, do you get it? And he says, I, I, don't, I don't think I did a good job on that story. Let me try again. And he goes back, and he grabs another image and starts another story to tell us the same thing in a different way. And so he's recapping the same thing over and over and over in the book of Revelation. That's much of what he's talking about. Now, let me just ask the question, aren't you glad I don't preach that way, right? I get to the end of the sermon and say, do you, do you get it? I don't I don't think you get it. Let me try again. All right, just a little preaching secret. That's exactly what I do. Every week, I'm telling you the same thing over and over and over, that Jesus died for you, that he really was dead and buried, but he didn't stay that way, and neither will you. Every week, every week, I'm telling you the same story. Luther did the same thing. It's said that Martin Luther once showed up at church on a Sunday, and uh, the people that attended his church said, Luther, come on, man. Why do you tell us the same gospel every week? I mean, week after week. Surely we've, we've, we need something else. And Luther said, because every week you look like a people who have forgotten it. Right? Now, maybe you haven't forgotten it, but I do. And I need to be reminded of it. Need to be reminded. So that's what John's doing. Is he's walking us through the story again and again and again. And so what we're going to see this morning is that one day the cycle will be broken. One day God will get to the end of the story and say, amen. Our text this morning is reminiscent of an Old Testament passage in the book of Exodus. The book of Exodus tells the story of God's people under the awful rule and reign of Pharaoh, this evil, evil ruler. And through a miraculous series of events, God interacts and intervenes as he so often does, and he delivers his people. And there's this powerful moment where God's people are running away. This is how they ran. And they look back and they see Pharaoh's armies coming after them and they cross the Red Sea, this powerful moment, and they walk across, walk through the Red Sea and then God uses the Red Sea to, to, to um, drown all of their enemies. And they get to the other side and they're looking back And they see all of their enemies defeated, and they sing a song. They sing a song. He uses the ten plagues. He uses the crossing of the Red Sea. And all of their enemies, all that had held them in bondage and captivity, has been dealt with and will haunt them no more. Look at the text, Exodus 14. We'll put it on the screen for you. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore, 
Israel saw the great power of the Lord used against the Egyptians, so the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. They get to the other side of their deliverance, and they sing. And they sing, he's delivered us. He's triumphed. The horse and the rider, he is thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his host he cast into the sea. And his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. Red Sea, not ski. Uh, the, the floods covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, Shatters the enemies. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury. It consumes them like stubble. At the blast of your nostrils. When's the last time you thought about the nostrils of God? Right? That's, that's what they're singing about. They're like, man, God is so much bigger than we thought. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The flood stood up in a heap. The deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue. I will overtake. I will divide the spoil. My desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw my sword. My hand shall destroy them. And you blew with your wind. The sea covered them, and they sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand. The earth swallowed them up. They were silenced. You, O God, have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. The peoples have heard. They tremble. Pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. Now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed. Trembling seizes the leaders of Moab and the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them because of the greatness of your arm. They are still as stone till your people, O Lord, pass by, till the people pass by whom you have purchased. You will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain, the place, O Lord, where you have made for your abode, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. The Lord will reign forever and ever. And he goes on and he looks at the people and he says, sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. So here's the question for us. Has the Lord still triumphed gloriously? The answer is yes, right? Has the Lord triumphed gloriously? The answer is yes. Then the question becomes, do we live like it? Do we live like it? Are we singing a song of deliverance? Believer, this is heaven for you. The fullness of God's wrath outpoured on your enemies. Our text this morning is a foretaste of the freedom we will enjoy on that side of deliverance, on that side of heaven, when our enemy has been defeated once and for all, and we have been delivered from every aspect of this war on us. Can you imagine how good it's going to be on that side of deliverance? Can you imagine? No more pains. No more relational fractions because of sin. No, no more disappointment with yourself when you look at the mirror, look in the mirror at the end of the day. No more hidden shame that you're trying to hide from the people who know you, and you really don't want them to know this about you. It's all gone. 
It's all gone because we've been delivered. Joel Beakey explains, Revelation 15 verses one through four is a kind of respite that can comfort us when we are distressed by the cares of this life. So friends, are you distressed? The answer is yes. Then this is a good text for you. So let's turn our weary hearts once again back to the word. Let's see what God has in this text. First of all, we see the seven angels with the seven plagues concluding the wrath of God. John says, then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing, seven angels with seven plagues. Remember the book of Exodus? Some of you are familiar with the stories, how God poured out the plagues on Pharaoh and his people. Okay, we're seeing seven angels here with seven plagues, seven being a number representing the fullness in Revelation, which are the last, for with them the wrath of God is finished. He says, I saw another sign. We, we, this, this is a contextual clue that shows us that John is wrapping up this passage of scripture. Last time he used the phrase, a sign, I saw a sign, was back in chapter 12, when he saw the sign of the woman giving birth, right, which is Christmas, and the dragon pursuing the child, which is Satan pursuing Christ, the missing element from many of our nativity scenes, which we have decided will not be missing from our nativity scene this Christmas. Right? We're going to have a red dragon right there in the mix. And he's done too, right? We might knock him over just so he's dead. Right? <laughs> just trying to be biblical, right? That's it. So that's what he sees. He sees, a, he sees another sign, right? So he's wrapping up this series. And now he's seeing a sign showing us the conclusion of this war, which the devil, the dragon, has waged on God's people. And he says it's great and amazing. Friends, all too, I don't know about you, all too often, what I see spiritually is not all that great and amazing, or at least I don't recognize it as such, right? If I look at my spiritual life and I don't use words like great and amazing, I'll tell you what would be great and amazing, is if I pulled out my phone right now and opened up my Bayport account, and there were four extra zeros, on the, the end, just to clarify, right? If, if I saw that, y'all, the tithe would be good. I'll just say that, right? Um, but I, my, my jaw would drop, my heart would stop for a moment, and my mind would go wild with the possibilities. Man, we're going family vacate, let's go, right? Uh, at that moment, it's staring at my bank account with the four extra zeros. I would say that is great and amazing, right? I mean, your eyes would bug out too, right? Imagine, let's just put a number on the wall. No, we don't, I don't know what you have in your bank account. You don't know. Let's say you had $5,000 in your bank account. Some of you are like, amen, right? All right? But imagine four extra zeros would take you from 5,000 to 50 million. Great and amazing, right? Great and amazing. And then, so I, I read this text and I see John say, man, it was great and amazing. And I ask the question, why am I not rightly impressed by great and amazing things that I read in God's word? 
Why, two or three days ago, can I open up my Bible to Genesis 1-1? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth and not be in awe. I mean, I just read it like it's a telephone book, right? Why can I read passages about his wrath and not weep? Why can I read passages about his unending love and not be stopped in my tracks? Friends, this is one of the reasons that I can't wait to get to heaven. I cannot wait because when I get to heaven, my weak faith, will be replaced by clear sight. And then I will worship him as I ought to have all along. When we get to heaven and God wipes all of the mess out of our spiritual eyes and says, now I'm gonna let you see as it actually is and you will respond as you actually ought to have all along. That is the promise of heaven. It is indeed great and amazing. And so he sees these seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last, for with them the wrath of God is finished. Just like the plagues were poured out on Egypt, these plagues will visit God's justice on his enemies. And one day it will be finished. The wrath of God says it will be finished. Now that does not mean that that hell is not eternal. It means rather that the cycle of this life will be broken that this temporary expression will one day be finished. The wrath of God poured out on the earth here in this text is a temporary expression of the unending wrath of God, which is poured out on the lake of fire where they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Revelation chapter 20, verse 10. So we can see why why John would use words like great and amazing. So what about you? What about you? When you think of spiritual things, when you open up his word, do you see great and amazing things? Or are you, all too often like me, taking things that are great and amazing and treating them as though they were common? Friends, they're not. So let us see the seven angels with the seven plagues, concluding the wrath of God. Let us be in awe. Secondly, we see the sea of glass and those who have conquered. And I saw, John writes, what appeared to be a sea of glass (coughs) mingled with fire. And also those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. So what is this? I mean, it's a weird image, right? A sea of glass. What does that look like? I mean, are there waves or is it still because it's a sea of glass? Well, I think it's, I think it's still. But what we find is that this is an image that shows that the sea, which was often a place of chaos, often a place of judgment, often a place of evil throughout the Bible, the sea has become the place where the lamb has judged the beast. Right? It is calm. That's what it means when it's a sea of glass mingled with fire. Scholars will tell us that 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 shows us that it's become the place where Jesus has judged once and for all our enemy, the devil. That's what it is. That's what it is. And so it is calm. It is calm. Do you realize that? Heaven is not chaotic. It's not chaotic, which is a gift to us in this chaotic life. Right? When family members are going in family member directions, right? As they often do, my family members say the same thing about me, right? 
as life goes in life directions, as, as we deal with money problems and house problems or, or car problems or friend problems or whatever, the case, as chaotic as this life is, heaven is not chaotic. It's calm. It's peaceful. And so God in this text is saying one day there will be peace. And who do we see there? Those who had conquered the beast and the image and the number of its name. All believers who remain faithful unto death. I think of the first century, um, first century Bishop Polycarp, right? Who, who said in, in the midst of a Roman um, execution where all of these Christians had been gathered together and they were gonna kill the Christians and they pointed at Polycarp and they dragged him out to the middle and they said, you're going first. And they said, unless... Unless you will swear by Caesar, which was their way of saying there is no Christ or, or Christ was just a good teacher. He really wasn't that big a deal. He's not God. He's not a savior. He said, if you'll swear by Caesar, we'll let you go. He said, if you don't, you're going to die. And he said, you threaten me with temporary pain, but you forget that there is one greater than you. You get, forget that there is one who is ultimately on the throne, who will reward me with eternal blessing. And so Polycarp was burned at the stake. I think of the second century saint uh, Blandina, who in a similar story was again gathered up in the Roman Empire with a bunch of other Christians. And they said, Blandina, you, are, um, you say you're a Christian. We're going to give you a chance to live. If you'll deny Christ, swear by Caesar, tell us um, what we want to hear. And she said, no way. One person wrote she, uh, of, of Blandina that it looked as if she were invited to a wedding feast not her death. That's how they described her, conquering the beast. It looked as though she were invited to a wedding feast. Would anybody say that about your Christian life, right? That it looked as if you had been invited to a wedding feast because, friends, you have. You have been invited to a wedding feast, and there will be dancing and wine, too, which some of us don't know what to do with right? It's going to be a really big party in heaven, and you've been invited in Christ. You've been invited. So why, friends, do we go through life as though we have been conquered? No, we see here the sea of glass, and we see those who have conquered. And this is not just martyrs. This is all believers who remained faithful to Christ unto death. It is those that were, that, that were martyred and those that died peacefully, on their deathbed at a ripe old age, having walked faithfully with Jesus all of their days. Their inheritance is secured. Friends, this is what God promises to you through your baptism. One of the gifts of having a morning where we celebrate baptisms is that those of us who have been baptized get to remember ours in uh, youth group. When Lauren and I worked with the youth group, uh, the youth director uh, would often take his water bottle and would splash the kids in the room. And he'd say, remember your baptism. Remember your baptism. Now, on the one hand, he was just trying to wake us up because we were sleepy teenagers. I totally get it, right? It worked. But on the other hand, when he did it, we would say, oh, yeah, remember my baptism. Remember my baptism. Friends, when you see somebody go under the waters and be raised back up, you who have been baptized ought to remember your baptism and that heaven is your future. And it is not just a good idea. It is a reality, and it's not a maybe reality. It's a sure thing reality. And so you rest well in knowing that one day you will be raised. You will be raised. Friends, remember your baptism. 
And so we see these who have conquered standing beside the sea of glass, glass with harps of God's, the harps of God in their hand. And we might ask the question, why harps? We tend to associate harps with weak little baby angels, right? And we're like, really, why harps? But what we find is that in the Old Testament, harps were used in songs of victory after a battle. They were accompanying instruments for worship. They also accompanied prophecy. I think that one of the reasons they're shown to have harps is to encourage us in our suffering, even today, even in your current suffering, that just as they conquered, so will you. Just as they conquered, so will you. They conquered all of the efforts of Satan to tear them from Christ. They conquered by by holding fast to the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony, and so will you. And so, friends, we can look to heaven by the calm sea of glass mingled with fire where God himself will once and for all judge all evil and will cast Satan into the pit, and we can see those saints who suffered in ages past holding the harps not as a weak instrumentalist but as a scarred victor cheering you on. Some of them martyred for their faith. Some of them rejected or scorned by family members for their faith. Some of them were faithful, even though they never got any applause for their faithfulness, but they were faithful nonetheless, and they are cheering us on. They're cheering you on. That's what they're doing. They are cheering you on. Thirdly, we hear the song of Moses and the song of the Lamb, verse three, and they sing, They sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, great and amazing. There are those words again. Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Again, reminiscent of Exodus 15, when God's people praised him after a marvelous and miraculous delivery. Friends, imagine then how great the praise will be after our final and ultimate delivery. Right? They are worshiping God in heaven. And it's worthwhile to note that wrath is part of their song. You don't forget God's wrath in heaven. You see it in the right light and praise God because of it. Friends, in heaven, we will praise him for God is just in pouring out his wrath on his enemies. We will praise him for he being rich in mercy in Christ has saved us from that wrath. Right? We don't worship God rightly when we ignore something true about him. Some of you are familiar with the song in Christ Alone, which we often sing around here, right? And and we talk about Jesus and we say, and on the cross when Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. There was a a movement among uh, many churches not too long ago to get rid of that line in that song because they didn't like the thought of the wrath of God. And they said, we don't want to sing about it. We don't want it to be true, so we won't sing about it. Friends, we do not rightly worship God when we ignore things that his word tells us. That's why every verse matters. That's one of the reasons that the normal diet here at Catalyst Church is that we'll open up our Bible and go to the next verse. Because one of the things that doesn't allow me to do is skip verses, or at least not very well, right? And so we open up the word. We open up the word. Friends, do you find, even now, struggling believer, that your ears are longing to hear this song? Do you feel your heart being pulled towards heaven? You are one day closer to heaven. You can know on this day that there is singing in heaven. Fourthly and finally, we fear and glorify God with the nations. 
We fear and glorify God with the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. Again, we are on the other side of the river in Exodus 15. Our enemy has been deli- our enemy has been defeated. We have been delivered. And what we find in Exodus 15 and beyond is that the delivery of Israel was never just for Israel. It was for God's glory among the nations that they might know that he is the God that saves. Do you realize that that's true about you as well? Your salvation was never just for you. It's also God's way of of, of showing off his glory to those that know you, right? He is displaying through you that he can save. We are billboards of grace. You realize that? All too often, the people that know me probably wouldn't talk that way about me, right? Oh, man, he's a real billboard of grace. They might have some other words that they would like to use, right? But that's what I'm meant to be. God has saved me, not only so that I can say, oh, it's nice to be saved, but so that I can show that he is the God who saves. That's the way it is with you as well. Not only to your neighbors, but also to the nations. Christian, you will join the nations in worshiping.